Hello, I'm Stephen Fry, a trustee of the Royal Academy of Arts and very proud to be so. Welcome to our podcast. Good afternoon and welcome to the Royal Academy of Arts. Today's lecture for our Rubens event programme is by Dr Nico van Hout, who has been the research and exhibitions curator at the Royal Museum of Fine Arts in Antwerp since 2001. Nico studied art history at Ghent University and painting conservation at the Royal Academy in Antwerp. Between 1994 and 1998, he was the researcher at the Ruben Janum in Antwerp. Nico continues to be an active freelance conservator, and in 2005, he was awarded a PhD at the Leuven University on functions of dead colouring with a particular study of the underpainting stage in the work of Peter Paul Rubens. So without further ado, Please join me in welcoming Dr. Nico Van Hout. Ladies and gentlemen, please apologize for my voice. I have a cold, so uh, it's, uh, yeah, I can't help, but I hope you'll understand. This lecture will focus on how Rembrandt and Watteau each responded to the work of Peter Paul Rubens in their own way. The encounter with Rubens must have happened in their formative years in Leiden and Valenciennes. As was custom, both artists learned to draw by observing the light and shadow on plaster casts and by copying engravings after old masters. After all, prints were the best way to learn about the art of the past in the age before in the invention of public museums and photography. There is no doubt that the numerous and impressive Rubens prints caught the attention of the two young artists. Rubens himself had initiated the production of engravings and woodcuts after his inventions, and thanks to these prints, his reputation became nearly unrivaled north of the Alps. The Prince of Orange uh, secretary Constantine Huygens wrote, and I quote, I always had the conviction that even outside the Netherlands, nobody exists nor will exist who deserves to be compared with him, be it in richness of invention, be it in spirit or elegance of forms, or be it in complete versatility in all genres of painting, end of quote. Rubens' impact on the artistic scene in Flanders was even such that in his lecture Contre les Copistes, the Manière of 1672, uh, the Brussels-born painter Philippe Champagne ventured complaints that it had swept away everything that had been made up till then. He added, and I quote, all the pupils in that country aspired with envy to follow his style immediately and to copy this in their own productions. This has changed the face of painting in Flanders and has turned the reputation of those working since merely into Rubens copyists. They have not recovered from this at present. This base imitation is still going on and slows down all the force of their genius, end of quote. True, only the very talented 
could hope to emulate uh, and to improve upon Rubens's work. Painters like Rembrandt and Watteau, who were attracted but not intimidated by the Flemish master's inventions. They took his compositions as a point of departure for their own artistic research. Yet for the lesser talented, Rubens' omnipotence uh, must have seemed discouraging or even suffocating. To some, Rubens' legacy must have seemed like a devastating tsunami, an iconic role model. Rubens rapidly became envied and hated amongst artists. And even today, a majority of art critics only seem to be able to write about his oeuvre in slogans and with preconceived ideas. They make a caricature out of him, and when they hear Rubens, they seem to have this image in mind. <laughs> I sympathize with Germaine Greer, who stated that Rubens is not about fat women, but about paint and artistic solutions. But let's turn to Rembrandt. The life of Rembrandt overlapped with that of the older Rubens, but there is no proof that Rembrandt ever left the Northern Netherlands. Dutch collectors had acquired a number of smaller-scale paintings by the artist, but in the north, his more ambitious pictures were mainly known by reproductive prints. Rembrandt's first teacher was Jacob van Swanenburg, a genre painter in Leiden with whom he stayed for about three years from 1620 onwards. Jacob's uh, brother, Willem, who was an engraver, had produced a print after Rubens' supper at Emmaus in 1611. During Rembrandt's stay with Swanenburg, a larger number of prints after early Rubens' compositions engraved by Cornelis Galle, Lucas Vorsterman, and others had come on the market. And I show you them. These compositions of the 1610s were profoundly imbibed by the strong and dramatic light effects that Rubens had seen with Caravaggio in Rome. Very likely, these impressive series of prints triggered Rembrandt's interest in the use of light as a tool to create drama. The inventory of Rembrandt's estate lists a book with prints after Rubens and Van Dyck. The artist may have acquired these prints from quite early onwards. The Amsterdam history painter Peter Lostman, Rembrandt's next master, was equally interested in the vitality of Rubens's idiom. In Lostman's studio, Rembrandt learned how to analyze and to deconstruct compositions into separate motives and to reconstruct them in a different way. A good example of this uh, cut and paste method is David um, offering the head of Goliath to King Saul, which Rembrandt painted in 1627. At the center of this oil sketch, King Saul is wearing a heavy yellow cloak, which two boys help to carry. He's surrounded by a group of Orientals. The picture 
is an exercise in history painting, a pastiche based upon Rubens' famous picture of the adoration of the Magi, now in Lyon. Rembrandt almost certainly wasn't familiar with the original painting, but he must have known the monumental engraving in two sheets which Lucas Forsterman had made six years earlier. He must have been struck by this dramatic scene with oriental figures. The two turbaned kings and their retinue never left Rembrandt's imagination. They awakened the interests of Rembrandt in all things exotic. To the right on the Forsterman print, an oriental turbaned king stands in a frontal assertive pose with his legs in contrapost, his arms in the hips. He wears a sash around his waist. Rubens recycled this impressive figure in at least two more of his compositions, namely the head of Cyrus brought to Queen Tomiris in Boston and the uh, Adoration of the Magi in Antwerp. Nobody would guess that the biblical king in these three compositions was based upon the portrait of a real man, a friend of Rubens, the merchant Nicolas de Respegne. De Respegne had spent a long period as a commercial agent in Venice. From there, he had traveled to the Levant and the Holy Land. In 1615, he was a member of the Flemish nation in Aleppo, in Syria. But he returned in Antwerp before October 1619, when he married his second wife. In his will, the Respegne bequeathed to his son, and I quote, a golden cross of Jerusalem on a golden chain, his Turkish cloth, arrows, axes, and other Turkish rarities, end of quote. Rembrandt probably didn't know uh, Respegne's portrait either, but he surely was fascinated by the oriental-dressed kings in the Fosterman print. He isolated the biblical king and turned it into a fashionable self-portrait with a large poodle here on the right. During the 1630s, Rembrandt would elaborate on the dramatic rendering of such oriental painted and etched self-portraits and fantasy heads. In uh, 1629, Rembrandt took the same Wurstermann print as a point of departure for his Judas repentance. The sitting pilot was modeled on the pose of the king in profile on the print, but was given the outfit of the frontally standing monarch and the man standing behind Pilate was equally shaped after this royal figure. By repositioning Rubens's figures and by adding a mysterious light which reflects the silk fabrics and the precious metals, Rembrandt created his first true masterpiece. Look also at uh, uh, the hand of Pilate and Judas, those are really uh, 
you start feeling how Rembrandt emerges as a genius. This was also noticed by Constantin Huygens, secretary to Frederick Hendrik, when he saw uh, the picture in Rembrandt's studio. The narrative qualities of Judas repentant made Huygens recommend Rembrandt to the stadtholder. The fact that Rubens exceedingly became Rembrandt's role model in the 1630s may be linked with his hope to become a court painter. It was no secret that the stadtholder greatly admired the master from Antwerp, and indeed Rembrandt would be commissioned to paint seven medium-sized passion scenes, several of which are based upon Rubensian prototypes. We imagine Rembrandt looking at uh, the monumental portrait of Rubens engraved by Pontius. A striking image of self-promotion that surely must have impressed him. As a reply, Rembrandt started a self-portrait with soft hat. The etching was only completed after 14 states, and this ego document illustrates how keen the ambitious Rembrandt was to represent himself as a successful artist. In the second state, he still planned his effigy under an arch, similar to Rubens's portrait. The drawn outfit and ruff is that of a respected citizen of Amsterdam. But eventually, he chose a more sumptuous attire and vivid pose, as can be seen in the last state of the etching. In those days, Rembrandt tried to set up a production of religious prints for which he, like Rubens, provided the designs and which were apparently meant to be etched on the plate by others. For reasons unknown, he soon abandoned this project. His main activity consisted of painting portraits to make a living. Meanwhile, he started to paint ambitious history paintings, which he did to conquer his place uh, in art history. In 1631, Frederick Hendrik would commission him to paint a mythology, namely the abduction of Proserpine. The action is rendered convincingly Two servants try to rescue their mistress from Pluto by grabbing her dress. Dark horses are driving a chariot to the underworld. The composition could have been a little bit more balanced, if we are honest. We don't know whether the subject of the picture was chosen by Rembrandt, Huygens, or the prince, but it is hardly a coincidence that Rembrandt was leaning upon a Rubens composition of the same subject, the oil sketch of which is in the current exhibition. And I show you here this magnificent detail. Here again, we must assume that Rembrandt rather knew Rubens' uh, invention through the etching Peter Zoutman had made some years earlier. But instead, he focused on the brutality of the abduction and omitted the pursuing goddesses. Rembrandt's superb Munich Holy Family of 1634 echoes similar depictions of Rubens. The parallels with 
Ruben's holy family in Chicago are striking. We don't know where uh, this painting was in Rembrandt's time, but the Forstermann print of the composition was certainly available. Yet the holy family Munich soft brownish uh, purplish palette is unmistakably Rembrandt's. One would get the impression that Rembrandt only knew Rubens through prints, but this is certainly not the case. In the same year, he painted a picture of Queen Artemisia, who is about to drink the ashes of her deceased husband. He probably would not have depicted such an unusual subject for the market. This masterpiece was probably intended to compete with a picture owned by Louise de Coligny, and we know that the 1632 inventory of the cabinet of the Princess of Orange at The Hague mentions, I quote, a chimney piece, the history of Artemisia, done by Rubens from Antwerp, end of quote. In fact, the painting on the left, the work of a studio assistant of Rubens, and uh, yeah, is altogether not one of the better pictures that left the studio. Rembrandt may also may have known Rubens' early sacrifice of Isaac, now in Kansas City. This painting probably belonged to the Secretary of the States General of Holland, Tiemann van Volbergen, at The Hague. On 29 October 1614, a painter called Flessiers applied to this body of government for a license to make an engraving after this painting. On 24 December, permission was granted and the print was made by the engraver Andries Stock, probably in the same year. Now, Rembrandt decided to put Isaac in the foreground of his own version, placing Abraham's hand on the face of his son. In this way, he focused on the vulnerability of the youthful victim. As another source for his own work, Rembrandt may have used another impressive depiction of a beheading, namely Judas and Holofernes, a picture made famous by a Cornelis Galle print. And I point you out, the prominent knee in Rembrandt's painting is echoing the very prominent knee in uh, the, the Rubens print. Then, in 1636, Rembrandt wanted to thank Constantin Huygens for promoting his art at the Stadtholder's court. As subject, he chose one of his most cruel, violent scenes, namely the blinding of Samson. In the background, Delilah is running away with a part of Samson's hair containing his enormous strength. Armed soldiers have thrown their victim on the ground and one of them is poking out Samson's eyes. It is as if Rembrandt wanted to invent his own sequence for the well-known Rubens version of the same theme here in the National Gallery. The Rubens picture was a chimney piece in the house of Antwerp's burgomaster Nicolas Rokox. Rembrandt probably had at hand a print of this composition made by the Haarlem engraver Jacob Matam. In any case, 
Rembrandt's painting was rejected by Huygens. And that must have meant a serious blow to his self-esteem and to his attempts of becoming a history painter to the prince. Interestingly, Rembrandt's last encounter with Rubens was about the acquisition of one of his early paintings, namely Hero and Leander. He bought the canvas for more than 424 guilders, and seven years later, he sold the picture to the art dealer, Lodewijk van Ludic, with a profit for 530 guilders. By doing so, Rembrandt equally seems to have sold off his attempts to emulate the Flemish master any further. Ladies and gentlemen, the board sign Valenciennes probably reminds us in the first place of sanitary stops on our way to southern France. But surely Valenciennes deserves much more of our attention since it is the hometown of such painters as Watteau, Pate, and the sculptor Carpeau. Valenciennes was only annexed by France in 1678, only just before Watteau's birth, while ties with the rest of the southern Netherlands were still very strong. Except for studying prints, young Watteau would have been able to see Rubens' descent from the cross at Notre-Dame-de-la-Chaussée, whereas some miles northwest of town, in the important abbey of Saint-Amand-les-Eaux, he certainly marveled in front of the master's huge triptych of Saint Stephen, here on the left. Watteau may have been baffled also by the uh, hybrid Baroque architecture of the monastery itself, with its coupled embossed columns way before he arrived in Paris, and um, where he saw the same a bit in the Palais du Luxembourg. These typical columns reappear in several of his later works. In 1702, Watteau settled in Paris, where he quickly adopted the Parisian taste for Flemish and Dutch pictures around him. He initially worked producing copies for an art dealer on the Pont Notre-Dame. Then, in 1709, Watteau took part in the Grand Prix for the French Academy in Rome but he only got a second prize. Some years later, he would try it again to obtain the Rome stipend. Meanwhile, he worked for the painter and tapestry designer Antoine Dieu. He met with some important collectors, the Swedish ambassador Count Tessin and the banker Pierre Croza, who was one of the leading connoisseurs of his time. Watteau probably stayed with Croza as a kind of artist in residence. Croza owned some 320 Rubens drawings, including a costume book with hunting scenes, dancing couples, and a series of Turkish and Persian figures, as well as a number of highly finished models for prints and book illustrations. The banker had acquired an album with 94 head studies by Rubens that nowadays is lost. But it is perhaps no coincidence that from these years, Watteau made a number of studies of heads and expressions for himself, echoing the example of the Flemish old master. But amongst the most precious of these model drawings, 
there were two magnificent sheets based upon the Garden of Love, which Rubens had prepared for the wood engraver, Christopher Jaeger. The amorous theme and the gallant attitude of the merry couples must have seduced Watteau instantly. We may assume that the idea to paint his own fête galante got shape in his mind when he handled these delightful drawings. Fête galante that show young and beautiful men and women in fashionable outfit while socializing and flirting. Watteau actually never saw Rubens' original painting of the Garden of Love, which was sold to King Philip IV of Spain after the artist had died, nor the second version of this composition, which is uh, now in Waddesdon Manor. But he must have seen this workshop copy in possession of one of his patrons, the Comtesse de Verru, who had assembled a large collection of paintings from 1719 onwards. Watteau's encounter with both drawings and a copy after the Garden of Love must have played an essential role in his decision to paint his masterpiece, The Pilgrimage to Cythera. The painting reminds us of older Flemish landscapes, which are composed of a brown foreground, green middle distance, and bluish mountains at the horizon. A wide and impressive perspective, barely noticed by the people embarking. As a comparison, let me show you this de Momper landscape in the Antwerp Museum, which in my mind shows a striking resemblance. When Watteau created his masterpiece, he may have remembered another drawing, namely Jacob Jordaanse's boating party. We are not informed about the older provenance of this watercolor. We don't have a clue whether or not uh, this work belonged to Cosa. But the subject, the composition, and the presence of the mythical island in the background of this study could have been a possible source uh, for Watteau's masterpiece. Nevertheless, we are certain that Watteau consulted another Rubens source for his masterpiece, a link that has been unnoticed until now, and you have the, the premiere. It is related to the exquisitely decorated boat with the gondolier and his helmsman on the left side of the painting. The painter from Valenciennes must have been familiar with the Zoutman print after a Rubens composition, namely the miraculous draft of fishes, which include almost identical figures. And this is the Rubens painting after which this print has been made. Watteau most likely knew the print rather than the Rubens painting itself, which is painted in reverse, as you see. It may seem odd for us today that an accomplished master borrows from another artist so literally. On the other hand, we have to acknowledge that this funny citation remained unnoticed for a long time. The gondolier is well integrated in his new surroundings. The banker Crozat possessed a set of oil sketches for stage designs that Rubens had created for the solemn entry of Cardinal uh, Invent Ferdinand at Antwerp back in 1634. 
these models show embossed porticos and triumphal arches based upon early Baroque arch architecture. The study of such oil sketches may have inspired Watteau to develop the delicate light brushwork that was to become his hallmark. In the background of Watteau's mezzetine in the Wallace collection, we get a glimpse of such a Rubensian portico with a sad-looking herb. The banker also owned Rembrandt's Danae, and many art historians have pointed out how Watteau borrowed the bed with the gilded angel from that famous painting when he decided to paint a lady at her toilet, which is today in the Wallace collections as well. However, the story is more complicated because Watteau also must have known uh, Rubens' Bath of Diana, then in the collection of the Duke of Orleans, which was a kind of public museum open to art lovers and artists and frequented also by Watteau. In that picture, we see the goddess equally struggling with her shirt, staring at us, being helped by a maidservant and accompanied by a white and brown small Rubens dog. Now, Watteau was really charmed by these Rubens dogs that seemed to comment on the rather stiff subject matter depicted above. Some of these pets were copied in reverse and inserted into his own compositions. A good example is the dog in one of the paintings from the Medici cycle, making his reappearance in Watteau's La Surprise. The artist knew that cycle very well since he resided some time with Claude Durand III, designer of decorations and tapestry cartoons who lived in the Palais de Luxembourg where the Medici cycle was kept. In fact, La Surprise contains a more substantial Rubens quotation. The dancing couple is quite literally taken from a major Rubens painting that was in the collection of King Louis XIV, the Flemish Kermis. The relevant detail of that picture is at the left. Watteau must have spotted the detail instantly, and when he visited the royal collection, he sketched a drawing, not to forget this poetic passage. That's a larger painting. In his tiny judgment of Paris, Watteau has separated Venus from the, two, uh, the other two goddesses. He shows her from the back, struggling with her shirt. The painting is combining various elements of two Rubens paintings of the same theme, then also in a collection of the Duke of Orleans, but painted in a less uh, robust uh, color scheme. Dear audience, in this lecture, I have shown you how very different Rembrandt and Watteau made use of Rubens's oeuvre. I have tried to demonstrate that Rembrandt's light and Orientalism is rooted in early Rubens prints. The vast output of Rubens prints in the 1620s may have been instrumental in Rembrandt's decision to combine painting with lucrative printmaking. For Rembrandt, Rubens became a role model to emulate. This has to be seen in the context of Rembrandt's endeavor to become court painter to the stadtholder. When this ambition failed, he felt naturally towards his naturalism. 
that was his, uh, his idiosyncratic idiom. Watteau, on the other hand, didn't seem to have had the ambition to surpass Rubens. He was very much focused on the elegance and sensuality found in Rubens' later oeuvre. He imitated the soft and pale skin tones of Rubens' female nudes. He isolates uh, picturesque figures from larger Rubens' compositions and gives them a poetic sweet flavor that is entirely his. It should be noticed, too, that Watteau's lightness of touch is very similar to the sharp brushwork of Rubens' oil sketches. I still want to add that the current exhibition was made as a tribute to Rubens, a homage to color and invention. Long live Rubens. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Nico assures me that he can push on through questions. So if anyone does have one or two questions, please, this is your time now. We've got a mic at the back. Um, just wait till the mic comes to you. There's one just here. Um, I want to ask uh, about uh, Watto's drawings uh, using red chalk. Um, did he emulate the style and, and materials that Rubens used exactly? Definitely a good remark. I should have made it the working process of Watteau in his drawings with the uh, three colors of chalk, namely black, red, and white, um, is really, in my view, and not only in my view, in, it's a sort of um, consensus amongst scholars that Watteau has discovered that kind of medium in Rubens's drawings. Absolutely. Um. I love Rembrandt's Sacrifice of Isaac, and you mentioned the influence of Rubens' Sacrifice of Isaac. I know Rembrandt didn't travel to Italy, but would he have been aware of Caravaggio's uh, 1603 Sacrifice of Isaac? I think Caravaggio's influence on Rembrandt is mainly through Rubens, mainly. Of course, uh, Honthorst and Utrecht School of Painting, those people went to Rome early on and they, some of them had known Caravaggio. If you look at Rembrandt's oeuvre, you don't see any trace of, or you don't see a very direct trace of Utrecht school influences on his own work. And maybe it's to do also with uh, the fact that both Rembrandt and Honthorst, for instance, were, um, let's say, competitors for the same job. Now, in my opinion, Rubens plays a crucial role in uh, the spreading of that sort of Caravagism, um, and um, it is for me the source, one of the major sources uh, for Rembrandt. Of course, Rembrandt also must have known uh, some of the prints after Caravaggio, that's for sure. But you have to realize that in his formative years, his whole bunch of engravings is edited, is published. It's a sort of, it must have been really a sort of a shocking thing. You know, uh, in 1620, there's at least a couple of dozen 
very large size, impressive prints that come out. And that must have been very attractive to uh, Rembrandt. Okay, well, thank you all for coming, and thank you, Nico van Hout, for pushing through this lecture. And get well soon. Thank you for listening. For more information about the Royal Academy, please visit www.royalacademy.org.uk.